Good morning, everybody. Well, folks, hältst du mal mal doof gesammelt? Oh my God. Und am Samstag, wir haben ein Framework Ready haben, wir sind mal mehr haben am Samstag, und die Elon hat mal ein paar Worte so, und dann tun wir mal das hier auch treffen. And for those who didn't understand that, <laughs> we have a visiting minister, so we're having church on Saturday. And Elam's going to say a few words. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <clears throat> how, am I supposed to how's, how am I supposed to compete with that? So uh, I, I think somebody should tell a joke because the whole part of this program is that we start in, you know, light and easy and who who wants to get into that stuff right away huh who's got a joke i was amish i don't have jokes <laughs> <laughs> well and i only have amish jokes and you don't want to hear them <laughs> that's right and i just sit in the corner funny. and laugh at the jokes so. though <laughs> well uh, you were the good wife huh <laughs> like <laughs> what they say <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know how sensitive I, about, I am about people laughing at my jokes. So if, if you've been following my Facebook feed, but um, all right. All right. So um, I just want to talk a little bit about the, uh, about the, the show of what, what our objectives are. And it's obviously about um, engaging the issues that uh, so many of us have experienced. Um, and one of the things that we've used is this, uh, this metaphor of, of describing the, the survivors of this trauma um, as um, people drowning in the river. And that part of what we, we strive to do is, is create an atmosphere where we can help each other figure out how to get to shore this we're all we're all in this struggle but it's also some of us as some of us get to to a stable place and and security it's asking the question what's our responsibility towards those who are not as uh, as fortunate and and a part of that is um metaphorically going upstream and asking why are these why are these people ending up in the river in the first place. So that's that's sort of our objective. And and we have Audrey with us today. Uh, and she's um, she's familiar with with these traumas. And and uh, uh, we uh, I, just speaking for myself, uh, I see the contours of, of Audrey's life and And I'm really fascinated, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but um, <clears throat> I have a big wound in my heart uh, and psyche because my mother was not happy with her role as an Amish woman, but she was not able to speak up. And in similar ways, there's dynamics around that issue with my, my former wife, who's still old order compliant. And anyway, so... It, uh, part, part of the way of understanding it is uh, I see uh, Audrey as a, a slayer of the <laughs> of patriarchy <laughs> and 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 um, uh, uh, coming from from a woman from the society that that we're from that's uh, to to me is just really fascinating and uh, um, Audrey uh, Just to get a little bit into those details, Audrey's uh, uh, former husband is facing some serious charges because of these dark things that happen in these communities. And, uh, and her former uh, father-in-law harassed her about the charges that she brought, and uh, she brought charges against him, too. So, so, <laughs> so I'll just come out and say it, Audrey. Well, we, we are so in awe of you. <laughs> um, but, but anyway, let, I, I, I just want to, you know, um, um, I, I want to make today's program a, a, about you. Uh, you're, you're a mother of five. 
uh, four of who are still minors, the, 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 the integrity, the determination that it must have taken to, to take the actions that you have and to, um, to break that chain, that cycle of, of darkness. Uh, that's what I'd like to focus on, um, to, you know, who, who is Audrey P. McCall Kaufman? Did I, did I say that name right? It's actually Malco, but yeah, it's, Malco, it's hard to pronounce. It's, it's, yeah. Um, and I'll just English is my take, take, take it away. Tell, tell us, uh, tell us what, um, anything you want about, about this journey. I think um, I actually have something to add to what Elam said. Is So like for those who are familiar with my story, um, my own biological mother knew that I was being sexually assaulted as a child. She did not report it. There was nothing done. And every time I reported it to her, the sexual assaults got worse. The, the terror that I lived in, the horror that I lived in got worse. And so part of my awe for Audrey is this, is that how did you as a plain woman, like how did you figure out what to do to help your children? Well, first of all, before we dive into all that, I just want to say to both of you that I'm sorry that your mothers didn't step in for you. I'm sorry that they didn't come through for you because I know from personal experience what that feels like. And that's what drove me to stand up for my children. Um, I was also sexually abused and raped and yeah, abuse on every front as a child. And my mom looked at me when she still only had six, I was the oldest of 12. She had six children and she looked at me and she said, I don't know what to do. I don't have any options. I'll never forget it. She knew, but because she felt like she had no options because she felt trapped and who knows what other childhood wounds she had and what else played into that. I, I may never know. She chose to stay and she chose to not protect us. And um, each of my siblings have their own stories to tell. But as I look at the family, it breaks my heart because had my mom done something way back in the beginning, had she found a way to escape, the story could look completely differently. And I vowed to myself all those many years ago that I would never be like my mother. And not in necessarily a, you know, you know, I hate her, I'll never be like her. I just knew instinctively in my gut that a mom is supposed to protect her children. And I didn't know how to do it. Like, I, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I was following everything the church told me to do. I was reading all the books. I mean, let's be real here. I had over two banana boxes full of parenting and marriage books. I'm not kidding. You laugh. I'm serious. I like read everything I could get my hands on because I was so determined. I went through counseling. I mean, I did it all trying to break the cycle. Um, when I was, before I was married, when I was 17, 18, 19, I would go on long walks at night and I would just plead with God to like send me a good man to, you know, to, that I could somehow break the cycle. And for years after I realized my ex-husband was cheating on me and doing the things he was doing, I was just, I was wrapped, I was devastated. And I felt like God abandoned me there because I was like, you knew how much I wanted to break the cycle. And now here I am. Now I have five children in this crazy messed up situation. You, I, I pled with you, you know, and I, uh, my faith tanked, like it tanked because I felt like God was responsible for that somehow. Um, but what I came to realize with time was God did answer that prayer because he gave me what I needed to save my children. I wasn't able to save them. I wasn't able to keep what happened from happening. I wasn't able to make other people's choices for them, but he gave me the strength and the tools to get out. And so it all started with the whole thing of knowing instinctively that the fact that my mother didn't protect me, I, I just, I knew that mom had to do more. 
and I literally just stumbled my way through it. So feel free to ask me questions. Like, I mean, I could ramble all day and end up off in left field. So I'm well, so sorry your mother didn't protect you. That's something that I think that, you know, we can't make excuses for it because as a mother, I agree with that instinct of like, you know, you have to protect your children. You just mm-hmm. know. And and that's something that you, you have mm-hmm. or you don't apparently. <clears throat> and the other thing is, is that you're not alone. You're not alone in this. You're not alone in talking in this. And they want you to know you're not alone. Thank you. All right, Elon. What you got to say? Well, just uh, just to reflect on you know, I think one of the the issues for this subject is you know, uh, what were my mother's options? Um, you know, it's it's there's no factors. You you so no, no Elam, Elam, I can't understand anything you're saying. You sound like a a garbled robot man. (laughs) It's like you're frozen on my screen. I'm not sure why. Yeah, you might want to try exiting. Exiting the studio and coming back in or something. Oh. How, how's it now? You're still frozen. Better? Oh, but dang. All right. I'll, oh, I'll, hold up. I'll hop hold out. Up. It's catching up a little, I think. Oh, there. Now there see something. There it goes. Well, I, I, I just wanted to talk about um, that, you know, with my mother... You know, she, she there were there was no there was no no medium at all to to push back. It was either be submissive or or what, you know, completely leave. And and that is just so daunting. And and uh, it's partly the miracle of what we're witnessing in Audrey's story is that that she was able to 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 really take a stand and and make a difference and. And, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, seemingly arrive at a whole place. And, uh, you know, that's that's our challenge of of these 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 people have no option of of processing this this issue. And, and, And that's that to me is is the is the heartache. You know, if if there were just. Um. If they just weren't so medieval about it, if there were halfway houses, or I, I don't know, I'm, I'm babbling. <laughs> can, I, can I interject here, Elon? Go, go, go ahead. I don't think it's just that they don't have the option of processing it. I think that, one, they don't have the tools to, like, handle sexual assault. They don't have the tools. They don't have the education. They don't have resources. They don't have the knowledge. They have literally no knowledge. Like they literally shun sexual predators for six weeks. They put them in Bon and Maidong. Um, that's I don't know how to translate that for anybody. Literally, does anybody else know how to translate that? Bon and Maidong. Well, it's just that's a, a form question. of church church discipline that that as it relates to these issues of, of, of incest and, and sexual assault is not effective. Yeah. So they, so they do that. They put them in the bond and might them. They may shun them for like six weeks, six months, whatever. Um, they, they kind of like treat them like lower on the social status, but they don't do anything to actually prevent this from happening to other people in the community. They know that people are pedophiles and they allow them to walk free in the community. Legitimately. Well, and I think what one of the, the, the root issues that needs to be addressed here. Okay. So let's just go back into my story a little bit. At 17, I was raped by a 35 year old church member. Nothing was done. Instead, is- I was the one who was punished. 
I lost because my friends. I was the whore. I was, it followed me for the rest of my life. And so it's a fundamental foundational issue that needs to be addressed. It needs to be changed. And until we can, until that deconstruction can happen and the foundation can be rebuilt around sexuality and assault and all the multiple issues that play into it, we're, we're going to keep beating our heads against a brick wall. We can report till we're blue in the face. We can have all the structure that we want. But as long as we're still blaming victims, as long as we still don't understand healthy sexuality and crime, we're, we're going to just keep going around in the river. We're just stuck in the whirlpool. I think that's a really, really good point to make, Audrey. Like, I personally witnessed people that were sexually assaulted and, like, they they were punished. It's like the church, like, blamed at the community collectively punishes the victims. Mm-hmm. And, and even if they you don't... Know, uh, and, and, you know, if you kind of go back into my story, like, part of what happened to me is... So I reported these sexual assaults that happened. Um, you know, like there were there were five people that were arrested. I can't count how many times I was in the courtroom that year. And, you know, in, in one of the instances, there were like four busloads of Amish people who came to court. They cried for the perpetrator. They got up on the witness stand and testified, he has good character. You called a pedophile somebody with good character character mm-hmm. and and then um, after all the cases were closed and there the sentencing that happened my um, oldest brother died and that's a whole other sorrow for me um, my oldest brother died he drowned in the bathtub I still don't think he should be dead I think it was a serious case of neglect because he anyways that's a whole other story but when I went to the funeral this freaking church sent out 12 men to tell me that there were there were four of us ex-Amish people that were there at the funeral. So first they sent out men to tell me that if I put on an Amish dress, then I can come. And I was like, I'm not wearing an Amish dress. I am covered. I am modest. I don't know what your problem is, but I'm not wearing an Amish dress. So they sent me to another house to listen to their sermon while, you know, they're condemning all of those that there's no hope for your soul because, you know, there's there's hope for his soul because he was a good Amish person, but there's no hope for the opgangna. Um, anyways, when we go back to walk through and view him, they sent 12 men out there to tell me that I am not allowed to walk through and view him because it is my fault that people went to prison and are not there and able to say goodbye to him. Everybody else that was with me is allowed to go in and walk through and view him. And they all chose not to because they stood with me in solidarity. But the community saw that as an attempt to punish me. And those are the types of things that they do to the victims. They try to punish them at every turn of the road. Yeah, they find they find ways to cut you out and isolate you. And um, the character assassination is just insane. The way they, the stuff oh. they up the gaslighting, the lies. I, I just like, I honestly, I have learned so much about myself that I didn't <laughs> know. I'm telling you, it's- Hey, it's let me tell you. In the beginning, I used to just be so hurt. And now I just laugh. I'm telling you, I'm running a whorehouse. I mean, people come and go. I give massages with happy ending. I mean, the stuff I hear about myself. I, I Bro, one, welcome I to the be, club. <laughs> number one, I should be wealthy. <laughs> and number two, my life will never be boring if that stuff's true. Hey, let me tell you what one of the one of the things other things that the community did is um so I lived around the community for a while and they like harassed me through the legal system. Like yeah. the the 
the sheriff's department was like literally questioning my friends like every month on my whereabouts because the community was calling the sheriff's department and claiming I was doing all these crazy things. They said I was on drugs, which is funny. I've never done that drug. They said I was addicted to. Secondly, I was pregnant, which is also funny because, I mean, took me three years to pop out that baby, more than three years, like three and a half years. And that baby only weighed like five pounds. Thanks. And I was a whore and I was Jezebel and, you know, you know, all the good stuff. Oh, I'm Jezebel, but that's fine. I'll take that broom and ride it all the way. Man, I should have put it. (laughs) (laughs) What what was that last line? I said in five and a half inch heels. (laughs) Oh, better to crush somebody with. Oops. So, so Audrey, um, if if you're free to do so or comfortable, what what where were the communities that you lived, and okay. and what was your church affiliation? So I was not born Amish. For those that are listening that don't know that, um, I was born to pot smoking hippies, and my mom started attending Baptist churches when I or the Baptist church when I was around four. Um, she started homeschooling my brother and I sometime around the time that I was six, my dad started attending church and then we started church shopping from one church to another until we were home churching. And then we attended the order German Baptist brethren with the horse and buggy. Well, first cars and then with the buggies, like the, the old order. Um, and then it was there that we found out about almost old group that had broken off at Elmer, Ontario and settled in Cookville, Tennessee. So then we moved to Cookville when I was about 15. We sold everything, threw everything out, crushed everything that wasn't acceptable and packed everything we had to move from Indiana to Tennessee. And that's where life really began. And uh, we lived with- Oh boy. (laughs) We lived outhouses, no, no running water, like, it was primitive. We didn't have engines, any of that. It was horsepower, water power, um, kerosene. And uh, yeah. so we I did that for several years. And then my parents left again and went back out. They, it was a variety of reasons. My dad was very abusive. My dad was control freak and narcissist, most definitely. Um, so he couldn't get along. And the culture barrier was huge. The language barrier was huge. Um, And so he left. They uh, excommunicated them. And he kicked me out. And so Elmo sent me to Yanceyville, North Carolina, which was a sprout from Union Grove, North Carolina, which would have been newer. And how I ended up in all these little sprout churches that kind of did their own thing, I'll never know. But I think some of those can be the worst sometimes because, the spiritual and emotional abuse in those cultish breaks are just yeah anyway yeah um so you feel like they all had like commonalities they did and it sometimes i i'm not sure which weighs in heavier you know the spiritual abuse the narcissistic side of it but you know these, these break offs you know everybody thinks that it's their way or no way and then they create this ticking time bomb and every single one of the churches that i was in have all either fallen apart completely are no more or have been rewritten so went from then they started a church um in Birthville, kentucky and as new order and i went along um still unmarried older single at that point and then married there um later when our second child was born that church split right down the middle and went beachy um the ones who wanted to stay amish moved away and um it established as a conservative beachy uh, my ex-father-in-law wanted it to be a maranatha beachy church but couldn't really get people on board but that's still who they would predominantly fellowship with is maranatha circles the kind of the ultra conservative side of beachy churches um so that's that's where that church is and then um, in 2011, we moved to Pennsylvania as a temporary in-between 
um, and stayed here. And that's kind of when my world fell apart and my story kind of went haywire. Yeah. Um, that sounds pretty crazy. You, you talked about this like church hopping thing and the splitting. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of chuckled about this, like as an Amish person, and it's not funny, but it is kind of funny. But as an Amish person, you know, like, what are your options if you disagree with the ministry? Because, you know, the, the ministry itself, the bishop, the ministers and the deacons in the in the community, they meet twice a year and they rewrite the brief, the church rules. And when they do that, like, they decide everything about the community. So if you're an Amish person that doesn't have, like any kind of say in what kind of rules your community is following, what are your options? You don't have any. Because if you disagree when they take their rote, their rote is a sham, by the way. That's, that's, that's literally a lie. That is the biggest lie that is perpetuated by the church to pretend to give people power. I never saw a single person ever disagree with the rote. Ever. And yeah, I, mean, I was told, as a woman, my rote has to go with whoever the head of the household is, whether that's your yeah. father, your husband, your brother, whoever it is. So first off, not only can the men not disagree, the women doubly can't disagree. And no, they have, have no, no voice. voice. You have no voice as a woman. And in the cults that I was in, that's what I'm going to call them because that's what they were. Um, they were cults. They were absolutely cults, even more so than the Amish around here. Like, the, they had brothers' meetings to make all the rules. So the men would sit around and make all the rules. And, yeah, we had no voice whatsoever. Um, they, I feel, honestly, that the women in the communities around me here and, and these Amish actually have more of a voice than what, what we would have ever had. The only women that had a voice were the minister's wives who um, kind of were the pants in the household. Um, and if you weren't good, yeah, how they talk about them. Yeah, and if you weren't good, <laughs> oh friends, my god, did you hear? <laughs> I'm sorry. If you weren't if you weren't on the good side of those women. Well, you're you were screwed. But yeah, I, I usually wasn't on. I, I wasn't in their playbook. But anyway, so you know, it's hard. Yeah, sorry. the women didn't have the women didn't have a voice, and and so you know, going back to the whole sexual assault piece. And and to me, it's a much bigger picture than rape and sexual assault. To me, I see it as a domestic violence issue, as a patriarchal issue, because the women are not equals. Well, there's the also... Women are, go ahead. The women are subservient. Mm -hmm. They're second-class citizens in a culture that treats them like they have no value beyond bearing children and being a quiet, submissive wife. Mm -hmm. And if you cannot bear children, there's a certain level, like you you lose social status for that, and people look down about on you for that. And they kind of like have this whole, like, just the way they treat them is very unhealthy and unhelpful and unsupportive. And then another one is, is if as a woman, like my aunt lady, um, she never got married. And if you don't get married as an Amish woman, what value do you really have? Yeah. None. I think depending what community you're in, that can, that varies a little bit. Like in, in the communities I came out, it was really bad. Like, you know, you didn't, I was 23 and a half before I got married. I had no autonomy whatsoever. They would still make me ride in the same buggy they went to church in. Like, with them. like it's so, like, you had no autonomy. You weren't, you had, what was personhood? I have no idea what it was. Like, there was none. You were under whatever exactly. man you either lived with or your father until, God bless you, the day you died, I guess. But up here, and in some of these churches, it's a little bit different. You know, the single women have jobs. They have, you know. It is a little bit different, but it's still not, it's still not healthy. So my question is, is, so if the single women have jobs, like 
do you know? Is that something that has to be approved by the man in their lives? Because um, in my experience, that's what I observed is, is if a single woman had a job, either her father or the ministry had to approve it. Like it's not something that you just make a decision like, hey, I'm going to go work. It's something that has to be approved. If you yeah. wanted to open a bakery or a rug shop or, you know, get a loom or whatever, like the man in your life or the the ministry has to approve that. And if they don't approve of that, never going to happen. Yeah. Oh, and we have a comment. Someone has to work in the bakery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Hey, if you can bake, if you can cook, if you can clean, if you can like fill the freezer and do all the things, you are, yeah. And, and, marriage worthy. Yes, that, that makes you marriage worthy. And remember, like, if you, you, you have like the church and then it's your family's turn to have church, you know? As a, as a girl, they want you to, like, make food, and then they tell everybody, because that's marketable marriage material. That's your value. <laughs> it is. Ah, that's ah. what determines a woman's value, and it's so messed up. And then when you try, you have to, as a woman, rewire. Like, I was never valued for who I am as a person, only what I bring to the world, only what I give to men. And to try to deconstruct that and rewire takes years. Yeah, it does. And I got to tell you about the bakery, yeah. okay? So, like, my family, <laughs> let me tell you something about my family. <laughs> so, on my mom's side of the family, there were eight sisters, okay? And they used to bake, and they had a bake stand and all of that. And, like, some of the baked goods that we made were, like, just people would, oh, my God, like, I can't even describe it. And I still bake, and I love to bake, but baking has been done in my family for, like, over, like, 100 years. Like, it's been done for, like, forever. Like, that's been something we were known for. But, however, comma, pause, I'm pretty sure that's not the value I bring to a relationship. That's an added bonus. Mm-hmm. Hey, like, we got all sorts of added bonuses under our belts. This is true. <laughs> this is true. Because we, we like, are the, a whole woman with all these other bonuses. And, you know, I've often, like, thought about, like, um, the Amish dolls, for example. Like, do you know what they look like? They, they have no face, like they're, they're just, there's no eyes, no ears, no nose, no mouth. Like, basically, that's exactly what it feels like to be an Amish girl or an Amish woman. You have no autonomy, you have no self-expression, you have no way of, like, showing anything. Like, you, you just don't have it. And then yeah, let me ask you this. Injury. You've all got, they've all got the same name. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> How many Marys do you know? <laughs> For can real. I, uh, can I can I just an advisor for a second? Uh, Audrey, you mentioned buying uh, the buggy, you know, even as a you know, twenty something. Um am I still breaking up? Yeah, you sound like robot Elam today. Oh, come on. Still No, you're not. No, um, you're not. You t- you talked about riding in the buggy to church and 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 how you just didn't have personhood and and you know I maybe just for the sake of the audience you know to pointing it out is what's that's what's so fascinating uh, that you you were that person you know in your twenties you know, no personhood and, 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 and now here you are. And, you know, is there a way we can sort of capture that and put it in a bottle and sell it? I Sorry. wish because I've got so many women I'd sell it to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Me too. I'd give it away. Oh my gosh. I'd give no, it to them for free. I have, I have, and this is something I've talked with 
like the advocates. So I work with multiple therapists and advocates through the court system and everything with this whole, this whole situation with my kids. It's been fantastic to, hey, I love being on a first name basis with the state cops in a whole nine yards. It's lovely. Um, but anyway, I, I've asked the one advocate multiple times. She works with rape victims, um, mostly, of course, outside the culture. And we've talked we've talked advocate to advocate um you know why why was i privileged enough to make it out when so many other women inside the culture and outside are not because i feel like if i could find the answer to that i could be more powerful in helping women and she said audrey i've done this work for 20 years and she said I'm not sure I have an answer. She said, some women are literally genetically wired differently and they're able to. Others, it's because of what they've been through and they've allowed it to make them stronger. And she said, other women, she goes, I have no explanation for it. Because in the work I do, I look at women inside and outside and I just shake my head sometimes. I'm like, how can you not just like, just do what needs to be done? Like, I just want to just like pick them up and carry them across the finish line. I can't do that because like a butterfly, if you peel it out of the cocoon, it, it won't, it won't survive. They have to find their way out and I, I can support them, but I can't, I can't do it for them. So I often ask myself, you know, what was it? And I don't think it was any one thing. I had a horrific childhood and, but from the time I was very small, I was always very compassionate, very empathetic. I was always looking for a way to grow. Always. Even, I mean, I look back, even as a small child, what can I learn from this? Like, that's how I approached life. What gave me that? I'm not sure. But I, I learned to work hard. I learned to push through. Um, and then as I came into this broken place in my life where I was completely shredded and pulled apart and everything I knew fell away. Um, there was different people that played different roles in my life in different seasons. And a, a lot of those people aren't even in my life anymore because, you know, some of them were just there for the moment and they, they gave me strength or they brought something into my world that somehow empowered me. Um, and I, I look back as, you know, it was a circular spiral that, you know, staircase that just went up, up, up. And I'm not sure that any one thing that I do know that my constant drive to become a better person, you know, even as I was determined that I wasn't going to take my childhood crap into my marriage. So I started therapy before I was married, as twisted as that was, because it was through the church. Um, I was determined all the way through to be a whole person myself as much as I knew at the time. And I think that plays a huge part. Like we have to be committed to our own growth, even if we don't know what that path looks like. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. So you were determined to have therapy. Okay. And be a better person. Um, was this counselor, like the therapist that you started before you even got married, were they somebody that was like promoted by the community? Were they licensed? Were they outside of the community? They were in a beachy church at the time. Um, they were not licensed by the state. Um, it turned into it turned into a complete disaster. And one day, I'm going to tell the whole story from beginning to end because it's extremely, it's an extremely big piece of my story, and the world needs to hear it because it happens all the time. But when I started counseling. The church itself was not okay with it, but huh. they saw me as a problem. And so, well, this is our last option. And, you know, let's go along with this. Let's get this woman fixed. And you laugh, Sorry. Caleb. You laugh. I no, I laugh because the church had a problem with me. They tried to tell me to go to one of the ministers for counseling. And I um, ended up seeing a licensed therapist that worked with domestic violence victims and they did not like it. And they like were trying to make me stop going. And I threatened to leave the church. You're frozen <laughs> laughing and I love it. Um. 
Frozen laughing. I love this. Um, Technological well, he, problems. And what the one thing that they gave me that I will acknowledge is they gave me the understanding that Jesus was present with me in my pain. They gave me a foundation, however warped it may have been, the rest of it may have been, that God was not who I was taught that he was because all of my childhood, God was up there with a great second. If I didn't jump high enough, fast enough, and ask a bunch of questions on the way up, I was going down. And so that that was powerful in I, I've often said I would have never made it through my marriage crisis and what I've been through with my kids if I wouldn't have had that. Um, but they they were also the ones who blamed me and shamed me for my rapes and that got very, very twisted. And then later on, when I was finally onto what my ex-husband was doing, when I finally got started to get to the root of it, I started to understand what sorry, what the fuck was really going on. Um, that's when all of a sudden they flipped against me and the whole, it went psycho crazy after that. And um, yeah, that's, that's another story wow. in and of itself, but it's just proof again that I don't, these, these unlicensed counselors, these people that are promoted by the church. It, They're not qualified and they don't have the education or the tools no. to actually help victims. They don't I mean, when have you talk any about, When you talk about like them talking about like um, the victim blaming and stuff like that, like I know in my case, I was told like, you know, if you really didn't want this to happen, like it wouldn't. And if you really, truly believed, it wouldn't happen. And so those are things that are common threads that I've found with a lot of victims. And thank you for sharing that. Because for me, I feel like it's important to kind of talk about that a little bit. Because that's also spiritually abusive. Very. It's almost like the churches are kind of, in my opinion, they tend to be really narcissistic and patriarchal. Mm-hmm. And it comes out in the way they t- treat those victims. Like another one that I was told is that I didn't pray hard enough. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, what about this? And I said this when, um, way back when in like 2004, I said this. Um, How about this? How about God helps those who help themselves? How about that? <laughs> well, and that's yeah. where I finally came to in my situation. I realized like. I had prayed for years for my husband. I had read every darn marriage book there was out there. I had been to how much, God knows how many like women's retreats and all this kind of stuff. It, it all of a sudden I was face to face with the reality that God helps those that help themselves. Like I had all the power within me to change the situation. No, it wasn't going to go the way the church thought it should. But you know, God, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make drinks. So. If I, I have all this knowledge, what, it was finally my time to pick it up and do something with it. Ow. Um, so would you say that any of those books actually um, helped you rectify? Like, how did you, because in my experience, um, Amish women don't know, or like plain women, like they don't necessarily know, like how to even begin reporting abuse. Would you say that that is true? Yes, I would agree with that. I didn't know. I mean, when I, when my children came to me and started telling me what had been done to them, I wasn't shocked by any means. I had been suspicious for a while, um, but I wasn't sure what to do with it. I didn't, I knew it had to be reported. I knew something had to be done. I knew I had to keep my children safe at all costs, no matter what that looked like. I knew it wasn't going to be pretty. And I was scared out of my ever loving mind. I was terrified, but I knew I had to do something with it. And I called my therapist and I'm like, okay, so what do I do with this? Do I call the state police? Do I call CPS? Like, where do I go with this? And that's when she was like, okay, you need to call the hotline. And um, 
I knew that if I reported, I needed to be protected first because I knew what would happen. So when I reported the abuse with the uncle, I'm 600 miles away. So it didn't, that didn't really matter. Um, but when I reported the abuse from my ex, um, the other one, that was a different story. So I had, I went for protective order immediately. Um, that was the first, actually the first thing I did is I went for after the protective order and then I made the report like right on the heels of that. So was this therapist an actual licensed therapist? Yes. Yeah. Were they so, outside of the community or inside of the community? They were outside. So I left, um, let's see, I would have left seven years ago in January. It was the last that I, I when I quit attending the Mennonite church completely. Um, and then I thought, no, eight, eight years. Sorry. Yeah. It would have been seven. Was it seven? No, seven. I guess. Sorry. I got these days straight. Too many things happened in too short of a time. Um, and then I filed for divorce the, the month following, which would be February, because at that point I wasn't ready for divorce. I just knew I had to get out of the house because I, we were all, we were, we were dying, like literally dying. Mm -hmm. I had one child cutting herself. I had another child who was trying to kill herself. I was on the floor sobbing my guts out most days and yeah, falling apart. Um, but at that point I didn't know anything about the sexual abuse. Um, I just thought that his cheating and his infidelity and his, his emotional abuse was what was selling us. So um, fast forward, I, I was separated for, from him for two and a half years. They, the, the state person out of the house and I told him he's, he has to get help. And that's when his dad, uh, the infamous phone call from his father, I'll never forget it till the day I die. And he sits there. And he tells me that one of the day, these days, my back is going to get up against the wall with the law. And then I'm going to find out who's really in charge. And they're going to take my children. And they're going to do this. And blah, blah, blah. And I stood up to him for the first time in my life in 20 years. And I said, no, that's not how this works. Now, I, you know, I was shaking when I said it because I was scared on my mind. But I said, of course you were. It works. I was like, no. This is the United States of America. This is Pen the state of Pennsylvania. And they don't take kids from moms because I am a good mom. And I knew that. I knew he, you know, I knew anything that came from him was just a scare tactic at that point. Yeah. But two and a half years later, they did, he, Mike did the whole so-called therapy program at Life Ministries. And I did not engage with his therapist. His therapist did reach out to me once and I refused to engage because I knew what they were going to, I knew they were just going to play me and I wasn't, I wasn't interested. Um, later I found out his therapist knew nothing of his, virtually nothing of his infidelity and what he was really into, like the speciality and all that crazy shit. Um, but two and a half years later, you know, he convinced me that, you know, he was sorry. I shouldn't say he convinced me because I still, I didn't trust him. But I felt like I should go back for the kids' sake and try to make it work one more time. We were back together. We bought a house. We were back. We did the whole vow renewal. Like I was gonna make. I was gonna do this right. And I, I just, I could not physically engage with him. I couldn't. Like I just, I did not trust him. I knew my body knew something was off. And four months later, I found out he was lying to me the whole time, lying to me a blue streak. And that's when I said, enough is enough. You have to leave. Well, that's when shit got crazy because that's when he and one of my best friends and Steve Stutzman and Joan Faith uh, Fisher, who used to be my counselors, and I could go down the list and name a whole bunch of people, tried to gaslight me, manipulate me, control me, and make me look like I was crazy and that I was some kind of whore and tried to frame me in an affair to take the kids from me so he could get use of the home. And essentially I'm homeless, so I can't take care of my kids. And he was going to hire me to come back and care for the kids and homeschool them. Like it got so, he put a tracking device in my car. Like he got so crazy. And I thought I was losing my mind. I literally, I got raped. I got at a work party because I drank and I, I own that. But it, my world's been completely out of control and I thought I was losing my mind. 
And uh, that's when I was like, I was, I was January four years ago that I started with that therapist. It's like, I, I'm, I'm going to figure this out for me. I don't care what he does with his life, but I have to be okay. I have to take care of my kids. And when he, when he, when he did the flip on me, when he realized I was onto his game and they all tried to cover for him and they all tried to like mess with my head to try to control me and keep me, you know, from actually knowing the truth and escaping. Um, yeah, that's, that's when I realized that I better figure this out because my kids, I'm the only, uh, I'm the only, um, what's the word I want? Um, I realized I was all my kids had. And that's when I became badass. And <laughs> it was, it was a stumbling, terrifying, horrific journey. The trauma, I can't even tell you the trauma I went through. And I still have CPTSD from it to this day, it's, it's a lot better, but it was, it was hell. And someday I'll talk about all those details, but with the court I mean, pending, I, I won't go into all that right now. CPTSD, 17 years. It's real. It's real. It is. It's, hell. it's really real. And what people don't understand is like, I've had people tell me, let's, let's talk about CPTSD for a minute. So I've had people tell me that like only military veterans of wars have PTSD and I'm like that's a lie and the other thing that people often do is like they they really try to discredit like CPTSD because that's a little different so when you have complex PTSD it's repetitive trauma that happened over a lengthy span of times and it Mm -hmm. presents like even when you're treating it like it's different like I found out like two years ago that one of my triggers is like rats and and that can be directly tied back to like some of the trauma and I I'm able to heal from it a little bit because I now know that but before mm-hmm. that I had to work through all this other trauma and these triggers and heal from those so that I can like function and then it's like your brain's like here you also have this mm-hmm. yeah well and I think this is something we need to talk about too in relation to the whole the abuse within the communities because Victims are looked at in the communities as crazy and unstable, and the community has zero, zero understanding of what abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, the way it rewires the brain, the trauma, the trauma. Like, these people are not acting, they're not crazy. Their brain has been rewired by trauma. Well, and it takes licensed professionals to break that down and rewire the brain. And I just, I mean, I can't say that loud enough. These licensed, so-called, these so-called people helpers, they, they don't understand it. And they just add secondary trauma over and over and over and over again. And these victims never escape. Their CPTSD because it's constantly being inflicted on them. Yep. Yeah. You get me started on that subject, uh, and I get. Oh, oh my! We could be here for another three hours if we start talking about that subject. Like I'm not even. <laughs> we'll, ha- lying. we'll just have to do another. We'll have to do another talk on that one. Because like CPTSD and the misunderstandings that people in general have about it, but like the the plain communities as a whole. Oh yeah. my God, that that is something I can rant about for hours because well, it's so unbelievable. Much, there's so much education that needs to be done. And that's where I get passionate because I'm like, the, there's so much education that needs to be done. And I, I wonder sometimes how much change we can even expect to see until we do some well, education. But let's, let's talk about safe touch, non-safe touch. Did you know that many states have mandated that is required to be taught in their schools, but they do not go into these parochial schools in the plain communities and require them to teach it? They're basically like, oh, you're this. We don't give a crap about your children. We don't care about your children. We don't want anything to do with your children. We don't care. And you know what? Had I not taught my children that very thing? I would likely still not know what had happened to my kids. That stuff is not taught. But how could it be? 
how could it even be understood because the adults haven't even dealt with their own abuse? I mean, let's talk numbers here. We're talking 60 to 90 percent of these people in these communities have been abused and they've never dealt with their own stories. So how in God's green earth are they going to help their children? How are they even going to know where to start? They don't. And that's what I mean when I say they don't have tools, they don't have resources, no. and they most certainly do not have the education. Even like, and and part of like what irritates and angers me so much is like the the dominant culture, society as a whole, tends to like just ignore things. Like, okay, so it's mandatory for every school to teach safe touch, non-safe touch. I think it's called like Aaron's Law or something like that, and. They don't hold the Amish accountable. They don't hold the Mennonite schools accountable. They don't hold the beachy Amish accountable. They don't hold any of them accountable. So what makes them so special that they are above the law? Well, and I think this is, this is a good time to talk about this because I hear people say, oh, you just want to destroy the Amish. No, I do not. That is not what this is about at all. I don't care how you live. I don't care if you want to drive a horse and buggy. I don't care if you want to have snaps, if you want to secure your clothes with safety pins. I don't care if you want to Straight you know, write on a scroll. <laughs> I really couldn't care less how you want to live your life. <laughs> That's not what this is about. This is about the safety and the autonomy of personhood, of freedom, of truth. And do I want to see them destroyed? No. But if they don't humble themselves and open themselves up to education and to learning and to deconstructing and to facing the truth, God will destroy them. And that's far scarier in my mind. What I want to see is for their, their false beliefs and the patriarchal system to crumble. Because until it does, they're nothing not going to be able, nothing will change and they won't be able to continue. They will be destroyed. And so why not set aside all of our pride and let's take a look at this. Let's have a conversation about it. Why do we have to be so threatened? What are we so desperate to protect that we can't even sit down and have conversation about protecting our most vulnerable, our women and our children? Yeah. That's just... You know why? Because right now, these communities, these plain communities that like whether it's Southern Baptists, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses, whether it's Mormons, whoever it is, these types of communities have literally created a paradise for predators and criminals. Yeah. And yep. um, what's happening, what would happen is if if there was a creation of education and personhood and women did have value in their society, that would take all of that away. It would take, it would, it dismantle would the, go ahead. No, it, it would, it would expose the criminals. It would hold people accountable and they don't, they don't want to. No, because yeah. Denial is a very powerful tool. I often feel like the church is in a way like think about this is like when you when people go through grief and they go through the stages of grief like or like trauma like you know think about the denial and it's almost like the church and communities as a whole they they're in that stage of denial and they stay there and it's like this narcissistic parent that you have that just looks over your shoulder and constantly judges you and gaslights mm -hmm. you and manipulates you. But we have a question from our audience. Ooh, I can't hear a question off what you were saying, how the Anabaptist churches are not held accountable. Do you think it is partially from a lack of solid statistical evidence of how widespread the abuse issues are? I feel like we get have loads of anecdotal evidence that never really gets heard and the legal system views these churches as immune from problems of the abuse. This part of 
what I see as a problem is like if you start going back and looking at like court cases and stuff like that, think about this. In like the Wisconsin versus Yoder ruling, if you read the footnotes of that ruling, you will literally see legal professionals talking about Amish people don't commit crimes and they govern mm-hmm. themselves. That's why they're not held accountable. Because even though they don't have the tools, resources, access to education, they don't even have good education. They publish their own damn books. Like, how objective can their education be if they're publishing everything that they're using to teach their kids? Like, they, seriously. And and then, like, governing themselves. We're approaching the hour and I just want to say that it's been an honor. Thank you. The journeys that you are on, both of you are beautiful and inspiring. And um, if, if out of this what? whole mess, if out of this whole mess, if there's something worthy of celebrating, it's it's you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ela. And why you gotta like cut it off? Why why do we have to stop? We were still talking. <laughs> well, you can talk as long as you want. It's your show, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, no, nah, I'm good. Well, should we gather again in like two weeks? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we can have it at my house. All right. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> See y'all.